Hey, guys, welcome yeah. to the Nation's Weekly Podcast. It is great to be with you, and I'm joined by the wise, the winsome, and the wonderful Claire, who happens to direct all things digital media here. So, in large part, if you're listening to this or viewing it, it's because Claire's great at her job. So, thanks, Claire. Uh, <laughs> this week, we have a, spe- a special treat for you and I. Yes. Not that every guest isn't a special treat for us to have a conversation with, but John Van Dusen happens to be more special. Incredibly. More special. <laughs> the most. The, yeah, the most Arguably. special <laughs> guest that we've had sit across from us at this table. Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> because he's a dear friend. He's from the Northwest, which means that we have a special kin- kinship. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, one that you just will never ex- understand as a Californian. I'm okay with that. <sighs> I'm glad that you're okay with that. Really comfortable in your own skin. Yeah. Um, no, but John Van Dusen is, he's a musician, singer, songwriter, he's a father, he's probably the most prolifically creative person that I know, um, and what I say prolific in both quantity and quality, um, not, John, that you mm-hmm. haven't probably produced, like, crummy art, um, or mm. stuff that's not worth listening to, Yeah, but uh, you have managed to produce a whole lot of different things that have a remarkable level of quality, so thanks. Wow. Thank you. There have been many duds. I think a lot of the, the, my creative work that has been subpar, mm-hmm. I just haven't shared probably because Annababe's my wife, if anybody wonders said, this is bad. <laughs> so thanks Annababe. She's the filter. Um, I will say though, I have heard your first CD that you ever made which in, in your car. Which driving around in a No one was supposed to hear. Wait, yeah. what? And I will say, I did have a lot of laughs, but it was so sweet and endearing. Yeah. Mm. Very I'm, precious. Thank you, Claire. I, I, <laughs> I made my first EP when I was 16, yeah. and uh, I, I didn't know what I was doing. But what that's, was that's kind of what was beautiful about it. John yeah. like? Oh, gosh. 16 year old John was. Just beginning to fall in love with pop punk, okay, and like metalcore and hardcore and anything loud and fast. Sixteen-year-old mm-hmm. John was more self-absorbed than I can explain. Uh, <laughs> I dressed like a skater, but I didn't skate. Nice, which I think was true of many people. Yeah, yeah, sure. lots of hypocrisy around yeah, that scene. In the it's year, fine. Uh, two thousand two or whatever it was. Um, and 16 year old John was in Anacortes, Washington. I was. Yep. Yep. At uh, Anacortes high school. I had played sports my whole life and about at 16 was when I realized I didn't want to do that anymore. And I just wanted to be in a rock and roll band. It's a great American boy's dream. Yep. Let's grow up and be in a rock and roll band. My parents were, I think more scared than they were disappointed in my quick, like 180 away from sports Mm. because they had invested a lot of time and money in me being a mediocre baseball player. (laughs) What position did you play in baseball? I played a lot of second and short. Hey, well Mm. people who suck at baseball don't play shortstop or second base. I mean, I think I was okay. I also grew up in Anacortes, Washington. I grew up uh, on an island that has 18,000 people. So I, I'm not like dissing our sports program. I'm just saying like if I had grown up in Carlsbad, mm. I would have been on JV. Nothing wrong with that. As a senior, I would have been on JV. Okay. That, an important caveat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, you know what? Some of us played uh, JV sports as a senior because I played on the JV uh, soccer squad at Bothell High School as really? a senior. Yeah. You know what? I bet that was a lot of fun. Dude, it actually was a blast. And when I was given the opportunity to move um, up to varsity, I told them no. Because I was all of my friends were on varsity and they were having like an awful time. Yep. And I was having a blast. I completely understand that. I think there's there's something brilliant to uh, low stakes sports. Hundred percent. And it's just it's just kind of fun to run around and kick a ball and not have to I miss that. Like break on the inside when you lose. Uh huh. Hundred percent. So so art <laughs> is a lot like low stakes sports. <laughs> <laughs> Fill in the blank. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, 
No, I, I am kind of... Okay, so we established that 16-year-old John was deeply narcissistic. Yes. Um, you have to be to step on stage. This is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, you still step on stage, so are you still narcissistic? Probably. All right. On some level, I think there's a narcissist in every single lead singer. Mm. I kind of want to make this higher. Dude, you can do whatever you want. That's why there's the one? knobs on that arm. Yes. I don't know. You just... Are you choosing... Wait. Oh, that didn't sound right. It didn't, but it's holding. It so that means that it's not broken yet. You agree. It didn't sound right. It didn't sound right. No. It sounded like a groan of pain. Um, okay, John. Uh, you're from Anacortes. Yes. We know that you've d- done music. Mm-hmm. Um, but what most people don't know is that you come from an interesting family. Um, your parents were missionaries? Yeah, my dad specifically. Your dad, not your mom. My mom opted out of ministry work and was an ESL teacher. Okay. And has worked for the Anacortes School District for 27 years or something. Dude, amazing. So I had a very interesting upbringing in ministry because my dad would leave to do ministry and my family stayed put in Anacortes. So I kind of had this weird hybrid experience where I grew up in a like kind of lower middle class, like average American home, but my dad would be gone a lot. Mm. So he would be traveling to uh, spaces and places where he was doing ministry work. And then he would come home. How long would he leave for? Um, Not terribly long at the most, maybe a couple of weeks. Hmm. And we would occasionally step into those spaces with him. I have many memories growing up of driving up into British Columbia and visiting the reserves where my dad would work. Hmm. Um, And so I got a fairly good taste of indigenous culture at a young age because of that. My dad worked with a ministry that worked with indigenous people in the Americas. Mm -hmm. And um, actually how I met Annababe, my wife, is because her parents worked for the same mission organization and um, she grew up, you know, on the very outer edges of a reserve in the middle of nowhere, Canada. So we actually, Annababe and I crossed paths multiple times when we were very young and just didn't know it. Destiny hadn't clicked yet. Nope. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't hit puberty yet. Ah, another name for destiny. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay so you're so, <laughs> so your your like impact uh or ministry's impact on you and your family's life if i'm hearing you correctly is um more so just marked in your recollection by your dad's absence rather than your like your family's participation in it yeah perhaps i mean i just i witnessed from the sidelines um, the life of ministry okay. and experienced the effects of growing up in a ministry home, right? We raised support, didn't have a lot of money. Cars were given to us, mm. hand-me-down clothes. Um, but in many ways was shielded from the reality of ministry in a, like in the field. Right. Mm-hmm. So like Annababe, for example, grew up in, in, in this space where she was inundated in a culture mm-hmm. that her parents were, like mm-hmm. serving. Yeah. And I was a just basic nineties kid, you know, growing up mm-hmm. with all the, you know, I, I was hitting, I was becoming a teenager at the turn of the century. Right. And so like that was pretty, pretty normal. Yeah. But then every once in a while I'd get carted off and mm. be like, Oh, I'm at a, a big old retreat or uh, there's suddenly like 800 high schoolers river rafting and mountain climbing. And then some, some weird, man talks about Jesus and I was on the sideline kind of observing like, Oh, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. Are you able to identify any way that impacted like your own worldview or perspective, or is it just something that you kind of can, you are observing now is like, no, that's just a part of this is part of my life. Um, I can identify a few things that it did in me. It's obviously really helpful and healthy to step in and out of other cultures. Mm. And I'm thankful for that. Um, I do think, which I think is common in missionary kids across the board. I often felt whether I could articulate it or not, that my dad cared more about the people he was serving than me. Mm. Now my dad will be heartbroken hearing this, although he knows that that's something my sisters and I have struggled with. And any missionary in the field who has kids probably is going to wrestle with that reality with their children. Mm. Um, 
so I think that's, that has shaped me probably now as a father. Um, and probably other ways too, but I can't quite think of anything off the top of my head. Hmm. Well, we'll just sit here in silence quietly until you can yeah. um, think of some more things. <laughs> <laughs> I do think though, my dad, he stepped into broken spaces. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's something I observed in him. And he stepped into spaces where he wasn't necessarily always welcome mm. at first. Yeah. And, you know, we don't even have time to get into the delicate um, complexities of white Christians serving indigenous people in North America. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I've, I've undoubtedly... I carried a lot of like that stuff with me, Mm -hmm. but, um, yeah. Well, unless you got a question. Well, I don't have a question. I'd more of a comment. I was going to say it did, I think to shape your family's culture of how you, of how you as an individual engages with brokenness and steps into that. I think it's something that was maybe instilled in you as a family culture that you carry, Mm. um, Mm. even in the way that you do that inwardly with yourself. And with your family um, now with Anna Babe and yeah. Bench. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Thanks. It's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Well, it's a conversation worth having. The one that you just, you, you, the big one that you just mentioned, the complexities of like cross cultural missions. Mm. And I mean, it is actually a question that I kind of wanted us to, to talk about in general. I thought it might come a little bit later in the conversation, but that's fine that it's rearing its head now. So let's, I say, let's just dive in because each, all three of us, I mean, you've got a background and experience in submissions movements around the world. Um, I grew up in a family that has that component to it as well. My dad did um, work with not like a explicitly missional uh, organization, but a faith-based uh organization that served the poor in Latin America. So that's, you know, I grew up going down to Latin America and and working and getting to know and live with, you know, some of the poorest of the poor there. So it does raise this question of is like, which is one that at Nations we're very interested in having. I mean, it's part of the reason why we exist is saying, well, hey, there's, there's, there's healthy and there's unhealthy expressions of missiology. There's mature and there's immature spirituality and theology that undergirds and informs uh, that. So I think part of the question is, you know, are there like, are there healthy ways to be doing that? Or should we all just, you know, stay in our own lane and only try and minister to the culture <laughs> that, uh, that we've been born into? Cause there's surely enough brokenness there, you know, in our backyards or in our own homes. Mm. Oof. <laughs> we also don't have to open that can of worms. I think I would want to hear you. I'd want to hear both of you talk about that for a while before I start to give my opinion, because mm-hmm. I don't think I have a real nuanced opinion on it. And I think unpacking that very Christian thing of feeling called Mm -hmm. to a people Mm -hmm. or a nation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or some subset of a society is just really interesting. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes mission work, whether we realize it or not is coming from an unhealthy place mm-hmm. and we're actually doing it to like try to save ourselves. Mm. And I wish my dad was here because he has this story when he was, so he was on campus crusade for Christ in the eighties, maybe even seventies and campus crusade for Christ does that thing where they like record how many um, salvations and like oh, baptisms yeah. and how many people like received Christ type of stuff and you keep track of it. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I can't believe I'm telling this story. Ledger of saved souls. Yeah. And to to tell my dad's story uh, quickly and without his permission, there was a moment where he was so caught up in wanting to be like productive for God's kingdom Mm. that he would fabricate his numbers. 
Mm. I wish he was here to tell it because he would give a very like beautiful and nuanced mm-hmm. um, version of that story. But so when it comes to uh, especially a good example, white people stepping into an indigenous space, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. got to be really careful. Yeah. And thankfully without digging in and, and um, naming names, I think there has been a big shift in the last 20, 20 or so years. Mm-hmm where the focus is on empowering indigenous people mm-hmm. who love the Lord to uh, do that work. Yeah. So that's about as much as I would say on it. I think that's a great answer. <laughs> uh, and not just because I happen to, uh, you know, resonate with it or, or deeply agree with it. it. You are, I think it's one of the things that excites us about our work here is that you're right. There has been a, a really big shift in the last 20 to 30 years, um, not just in the church space, but in the academy um, and in, you know, missions organizations around the world of recognizing, well, hey, there's, yeah, there's really harmful ways um, where we weren't bringing the gospel at all. We were bringing our own culture and our culture's values and imposing that upon people and, you know, and dressing that up in the name of Jesus. And uh, that inevitably just bears bad fruit. Um, so th- I'm grateful for all the, the wise and reflective people who paid attention to what sort of fruit our actions and our, um, our underlying theology was producing and have begun to ask better questions and seek better ways of doing things, which is exactly what you named Indige- indigenous empowerment, empowering people to, um, to serve and to lead the communities that they are already in and know and care about is such a better way of, of doing things. Um, I mean, on pretty much every metric that you can think about. Have you read, have you, have you read Bruchko? Oh dude. Yeah. I read that. I heard that back in college. I, so I got to meet Bruce Olson Uh and had like a two minute conversation was fairly astonished at him. Uh He just like radiated next level (laughs) to put it technical term, the technical term. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But uh, like moving to the middle of the jungle and learning language and then trying to translate the gospel into those spoken languages that weren't written mm-hmm. in a way that made sense to people who have never left the jungle. Mm-hmm. I'll just never forget hearing him talk about that. Mm. So you can't, if you have no frame of reference for Near Eastern culture or Western culture, trying to explain Christianity to someone who's never left the jungles of South America is nearly impossible. Yeah. Well, but he figured out a way to do so, mm-hmm. apparently. And I thought, I think that's fascinating. Well, it's, you're naming one of the greatest challenges, but also one of the greatest opportunities. I was, I mean, that, that example you're sharing just makes me think of, of Mark Palm, who sat in, who sat in the chair that we've shoved into the corner so you could stand uh, <laughs> and talked about, Hey, one you know, they, they work in Papua New Guinea. Joel's over there right now filming with Mark. Um, you know, they run uh, Samaritan aviation and they, they bring emergency medical care to um, people in the backwater jungles of Papua New Guinea. And uh, they do it for free. It's a ministry. So they don't, they don't charge for uh, bringing people out of the jungle and taking them to a hospital. And he said, you know, that's one of the things that's su- uh, such a challenge, but such an opportunity for them is that there is no conception of grace in the culture that they serve and that they live in. Um, so offering a free, uh, a free ride is this kind of doorway into a conversation where it's like, hey, there's an undergir- underlying concept that we take for granted that we really, you know, it makes, like you said, makes good sense to us. Um, that doesn't exist in their culture. There are no free gifts. Um, Hmm. So trying to figure out how to model that, but then how to like articulate it in a way that makes sense to them is part of the unique challenge of any um, sort of missions. But it's also, I'd say, the unique challenge of what you do as a songwriter. Well, yes, keep going. And I had, it's funny you went there. I had a thought, so. Well, then share the thought. Well, I was just thinking that uh, when Christians make art, for Christians inside the Christian fort, mm-hmm. we are essentially, there's some shared vocabulary and culture. Yes. But when Christians try to step out and create art in hopes that people outside of the Christian fort will relate to it, uh-huh. it gets, um, it's really difficult to not do that in a clumsy manner. Mm-hmm. Because I think 
people outside the Christian fort have either been like conditioned to distrust organized religion mm-hmm. um, or they just smell BS a lot better and quicker. <laughs> so like if I was to grab somebody off the streets who doesn't go to church and like just like drag them into a, an evangelical Christian service where they're going to sing all of the songs. Mm-hmm. Is it similar to when somebody from one culture steps into another and is like, I know what you need. Mm-hmm. You need this. And this is the vocabulary. And this is the metric by which I determine my ethics. And I'm just going to, expect you to interface with that in a way that makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So being an artist, like my whole thing has been, I'm a Christian. So I really like to on occasion sing about how much I love Jesus, but I also just like singing about everything else. Yeah. And I think that can be really jarring for people living inside the Christian fort. Mm. But I've found that if somebody at least can entertain the thought that I'm not like totally awful because I come from religion, Mm. maybe they're more likely to connect with the songs because I've chosen to not just sing about and not just use the language of uh, the Christian fort. Mm -hmm. Does that make any sense? Yes. Okay. And I think it, when we were trying to talk about this and what the direction we kind of wanted to take with this, we had talked about how I've seen in you throughout the last 10-ish years, how you, and we've talked about a lot between us, but um, how you don't fit in a box and how you are kind of this gray space of an artist, of a person who grew up in Anacortes but doesn't necessarily even fit in with that typical Anacortes music scene, mm-hmm. um, how you're not a Christian artist but you're not a secular artist because you're a Christian artist and a secular artist. And I think... Um, yeah, I think going back to even the point about your dad and that kind of teaching you how to step in and out of culture has done you a service in that, mm. that you've kind of been able to master that as a craft, as being able to create frameworks and perspectives for people that are outside of the other box, right? But we don't other. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, something that you can kind of finesse. That's really interesting. I think gracefully. Thank you. Yeah. But it is interesting because there's always that tension. Well, I feel a little homeless as an artist. Sure. Mm. Right. And actually, usually as a Christian as well. Totally. So um, I don't know if that's like a, a natural repercussion of living in the gray space. Probably. Or being like a staunch centrist at heart. Mm. Also. But like... I do enjoy stepping in and out of different um, spaces where the vocabulary changes. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll go play Dungeons and Dragons with my friends Mm -hmm. who, by all standards, um, despise religion. Mm. Sure. And for their own good reasons. And, um, And then step into a space like this where you know, we can talk about Bruce Olson. <laughs> Super niche reference. Uh, on actually, on my nation's bingo card, um, you actually didn't fill a box because I didn't have it on there. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, That's, sorry, just an idea for future podcast episodes. Yeah. If for those who uh, subscribe, mm-hmm. like actually taking a picture of, like a bingo card, but like having somebody else who's not like writing the content or like driving the conversation uh-huh. mm-hmm. list the bingo. And then I just, well, but then everybody's listening at the same time. So it doesn't make any sense. Everybody would get bingo at this precisely the same time if they're listening. Dude, but no, you're, there's a way. You're onto something. Mm, thank you. I'm going to submit that formally to our R&D department um, for <laughs> digital engagement, which Claire is the newly appointed chair of. Cool. So you were going somewhere with songwriting, and I'm curious yeah. where you were going with it, because obviously that's what I do. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I, we began to explore it some. I mean, obviously, when I first encountered you as an artist, uh, it was during your days as frontman for the Lonely Forest. And I mean, great chapter of your life. People recommend that you guys go listen to their songs. They're still great. Um, not super interested in exploring that season of your life, unless there's something pressing you feel like you want to share about it. Thank you. But you, you know, I mean... You as a songwriter, I mean, you as a performer were really gripping back then, but the thing that really captivated me was was your lyrics and the fact that you were um, you were writing just some really thoughtful pieces that were engaging deeply with, um, well, some might say the consequences or the fallout that you'd had with your the own tradition that you'd been raised in. Um, but, you know, political elements, elements about war and ethics. I mean, you're a thoughtful, there's a lot of philosophy baked into a lot of your words. And then I, then I, you know, graduate college and I still listen to you and your stuff post-college, but then like most things, you know, like got distracted with my own life and it, years passed before I re-encountered you as a friend and also as an artist and there, this transformation had happened and you were continuing to engage with a bunch of those, uh, like, those themes, but clearly from a very different place. And, um, and some of it obviously was outright spiritual and religious. And so I'd love for one, for you to just share a little bit about the story of like transformation. Like how'd you go from being, um, the guy that I met in college as front man for lonely forest, this kind of rock and roll band, living the, living the rock and roll band dream to the artist that you're emerging to be now, which is this, as we've mentioned, this complex one. Um, and this one that, uh, that writes, uh, and creates songs and art that uh, doesn't quite fit neatly into a box. Wow. Well, thank you for saying those nice things about my music. You're welcome. I'm glad you liked The Lonely Forest. If you, you wouldn't know, but um, Joseph and I have played shows together. This is true. No one would know that. But for the people that were there. But for the people who were there. Um, back in what years would have that would have been like 2007 and 8 and 9 maybe yeah yep so even if you if you dig into the lyrics of the lonely forest which i started playing in the lonely forest and writing lonely forest songs when i was 17 just after 16 year old john mm -hmm. we met earlier you know <laughs> i was i think trying to ask harder questions and i've always been pretty honest about what I was going through, it's kind of how I processed my, my world, my reality. So a lot of those Lonely Forest lyrics, even when I wouldn't have called myself a Christian, I was asking hard questions about, not just like about myself, mm -hmm. but also about God and existence. And when I was 18, started touring with the Lonely Forest, I didn't go to high school my senior year. And I took some philosophy courses at a community college online. And just even intro to philosophy was enough to push mm -hmm. me into, I don't believe in God anymore. Right. So the, the Christianity I grew up with, which I think was fine, it just really for me was a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. I didn't think about it that much. Um, maybe had spurts of like serious questioning at like random young life camps. Mm -hmm. But that those were the experiences where I thought about it. And then I went back into my normal routine of school and friends and sports. Um, and the really short version is that, you know, the Lonely Forest, it was, it was a vehicle for my ambition. And I worked really hard. And the Lonely Forest saw some enough success that I could continue doing that. And I just... It was as if um, on the outside, I was experiencing everything I had worked so hard to achieve, but on the inside, I was feeling increasingly, um, you know, lonely or broken, depressed, um, you know, list all of the et cetera, like yeah. things. Um, and realized especially that I wasn't becoming the person I wanted to become. And you, if you go back, like for those of you who are listening and you listen to the Lonely Forest records, you can hear that. Mm -hmm. Like the first song on our third record is called Be Everything. And I literally sing, um, I hope I can trust you because I know I can't trust myself. Mm -hmm. And I'm singing to a higher power at this point. Right. 
So I kind of came back to belief in a higher power in, in a kind of agnostic sense, mm-hmm. um, you know, asked the normal questions that get, get one to that type of belief. How could all of this come from nothing? Mm-hmm. Realized I wasn't a naturalist in any way that I believed there was more. And so I kind of, and, and, and because of that came back to the Judeo Christian sense of God, because that's what I was taught mm-hmm. growing up, going to all these camps and church and interestingly enough, even after deciding I believed Jesus was who he said he was, which came after I read a, a book my dad gave me, by the time I finished the book, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. I wasn't experiencing change. Right. And that really disturbed me. Mm-hmm. Maybe I didn't talk about it very much, but I was just, I thought often, like, if I believe, if I'm, so now I guess I'm a Christian, but I'm not changing. And that felt incongruent with what I was taught yeah. to be true of Christianity. And all the while still playing shows, playing shows to more and more people, still writing, you know, hard on my sleeve lyrics and trying to be the best person I could be, but really struggling with like a certain sense of chaos that was just Mm. innate inside of me, a fairly chaotic person. I mean, if you met me at Whitworth when I was playing in the lonely forest, you probably have memories of me being a little like edgy. Yes. So I think that I kind of had this, like I'd vacillate between almost being like a whirlwind of intense chaos and then maybe a little bit more like I am now Mm. and um, was not changing. And the the shortest version I can say is that eventually just found myself at this place where I just did not like myself anymore. I was like, I don't like me. Mm. And that was really hard to admit, but it was just the truth. And that's when I began praying differently. And I started going to God and basically saying like, I have worked really hard to achieve this type of success and it's a vehicle for my ambition it's very self-focused, and yet I don't like myself. It's not working. So I would like you, speaking to God, to just do whatever it is you need to do to change that about me. Mm. And so my testimony kind of goes, that was the first time I realized, oh, I actually need and want God. So before that, I was like, I believe in God. And, you know, I didn't dig into theology, but it's like, I, on a general level, I'm a Christian to suddenly like, oh my God, please save me. Yeah. And that's when I got baptized. Um, that's when like my marriage started to make more sense. Um, that's when like I started to change. Mm. So at that time, that's kind of when the, that, that band I was in for so long, the Lonely Forest began to just come to an end. Mm. Lots, of, lots of things were happening outside of me, but in my experience, like it just kind of aligned itself with those experiences. And um, yet I still had all these songs and a desire to, to write songs and to make art. And uh, actually when I would have met Claire, how old were you when we met? 19. Um, uh, I had taken a step away from performing, being in front of people, was still writing songs because that's what I always do. Mm. Um, but I was taking a break. And when I got home from that specific trip, um, we were in Germany and China and South Korea. I just felt like it was time to make music again. And that's when I started the I Am Origami series and started releasing it. And um, I had kind of started those the first record before that, but I didn't know what I was going to do with it. Anyways, it all came into focus. And that's why suddenly I started releasing music from a new perspective, which was really like every day going by, falling more in love with the Lord and... Mm maybe every day going by being the husband I wanted to be and all these different things. And so I think my worldview shifted. I found a sort of like bliss in writing songs about this experience and about who I was learning God was. Um, So on that trip specifically when Claire was 19, um, I started writing what was soon to become Every Power Wide Awake, which is the second record. Mm -hmm. So I remember sitting... I remember sitting in the um, the church where our specific YWAM base was meeting by myself before everybody got there and writing songs that would become Every Power Wide Awake. Oh, cool. Mm. And then on that trip, I wrote a good number of songs that made um, 
the record Marathon Days, mm. which I released last year. I wrote Marathon Days in China. Oh, no way. So, like, mm. some of those songs are still pretty old. I mean, that was 2014, and um, oh. I, 2015, 2015, so um, that's, like, the shortest version I can give about how God captured me. Yeah. Um, and because I've been writing songs for so long, I couldn't just stop. Mm-hmm. And, you know realized that some being somebody who has had written and released music in the secular space for so long, I didn't have to forsake that. Mm-hmm. Like I could keep doing that singing about addiction or depression or doubt or anger or like the ways in which I was still like really unsatisfied with who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also sing about the ways in which Jesus was like slowly you know, changing me. And what I've found is that it just made more sense to me as a listener. So like I, I've always wanted the artists I know to be Christian to do that. Mm. And I've always felt like one of the best creative uh, like goals should be to make the thing that you want to consume. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so because I wasn't seeing a lot of that, like in the creative world, like other than maybe a couple key filmmakers that don't make Dove award-winning films, but went that make like Oscar-winning films, mm. who you can tell were raised either Catholic or have have a rich spiritual tradition. Other than them, I just wasn't finding it as much, and yeah. so mm. I just endeavored to kind of create that like too Christian, too pagan gray area. Like, there's no need for me to divorce the sacred from the secular because, in fact. Mm-hmm. they overlap in the Venn diagram yeah. and that's what it means to be human. So I think it's as if I found a sweet spot that um, doubled as a terrible business idea. <laughs> and at that, I will let you guys talk because that was a long monologue. No, thank you for sharing. It's great. Terrible business idea. <laughs> well, you know, we may have started a terrible business idea here at Nations as well. So at least we can all be in that in same together. that same sweet spot of the Venn diagram as cool. well. Uh, now, thanks for sharing that that uh, snippet of your story, John. Um, <laughs> it's interesting listening to you share that. A couple of things stand out to me, and and one is that the journey that you've been on has been one that's been led. It was first led by discontent. Right, you said you're experiencing this outward success, um, and the skill set that you had honed um, by virtue of who you are—that's uh, a writer, singer, songwriter, artist—that's um, very much attuned to. You're asking the big questions, but also really attuned towards like your own experience. And uh, I think each each artist is is in a sense. I mean, they're asking. Every creative act is asking a number of different questions, but, um, you know, like, who am I and what is the world and what is my place in it and what is the good, the true, the the beautiful, what is a meaningful life, um, why this problem of pain and suffering. So that's a really unique skill set that you've cultivated, and uh, it's that that skill set or that uh, posture, that ability to see and to hear that led you on this journey of discontent to say, wait a second, I, while I'm experiencing success in what I'm endeavoring to do, I'm experiencing a level of meaninglessness and uh, incongruence that is unsustainable. And so that leads you on the deeper, the deeper journey. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you. And I've been drawn to your, to your music as well is because it's, I find the stuff that you make John to be really refreshing um, in a couple of different capacities. One, because you're willing to take creative risks and two, because you have insisted on refusing to blend or, or to separate, but intentionally you blend the quote unquote sacred and the secular. And so I can listen to one of your records and I can experience alongside of you some of the ecstasies or the bliss, as you put it, mm-hmm. of that, that felt sense of, hey, I am actually finally changing. I am, I'm, I'm learning, I'm, I'm getting to know a God who is worth getting to know uh, and who is, uh, capable of being known. And that's slowly starting to change how I understand myself and the world and my place in it. Um, so I can, I can go with you there, but then I can, then you also will take me to places that a lot of other people won't. 
um, you know, like you mentioned, write about the, the depression or the anxiety or the addiction or the miscarriage or just the bitterness, bitter disappointment that inevitably comes from us living. So, you know, we hear, we want to, we, we like to feature reformers, you know, it's shorthand for people who, I mean, honestly, it's a people, uh, it's a shorthand for people who make things like increasingly I'm starting, I'm wrestling with that. Um, I commissioned a friend, Michael Wright to, uh, to, read uh, Maku Fujimura's book, Art and Faith, and then to just write something, you know, engaging with it. And in his, Mako's whole thing is this, uh, his kind of two big things are this, trying to start a movement of culture care. So like curating and cultivating the good, the true and the beautiful in the world in its diversity. And then articulating a theology of making or of makers. And that idea has really captivated me. And it's part of what led me to being like, you know what, John needs to be on this podcast because um, while a lot of the people that we feature uh, are maybe more overtly or more easily identifiable as reformers, because they're people who are like, well, Hey, I'm, you know, I, I'm going to work with, I'm going to work with refugees, or I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to work with the broken criminal justice system, or I'm going to move to, yeah, to this other country because of a sense of call and, and try and use, you know, whatever relational and economic capital I have to, to serve a problem. Um, and, but you're, you're reforming a different space, uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, which is that you're you're trying to map and to articulate and to share with us the experience of having your own soul like reju rejuvenated and reformed from the inside out. Mm -hmm. um, so there isn't a question baked in there, more so just an observation and uh, some appreciation. Um, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. That's, that's a good, thank you. Like, that's a good way to to explain it, even if I've never really use those words that mm -hmm. like uh, uh, creating a map of what God has done in me, Yeah. but a, a pretty trying to like, without getting too deep into the weeds of my own self, but like a pretty accurate map. Mm. Mm. And um, it's, it's uncomfortable work. Mm. So are there any uncharted territories on your map? Um, I don't think so. I mean, it gets difficult because a lot of the, the lyrics I use are not, they're non-literal. So like a problem would be that like I'm mining the depths of my own self and the way God's like working in me and I'm trying to work on or in me as well. And I think, um, but also really enjoy writing songs that are not quite as literal and are a little as opaque, the right term, just kind of like yeah. not quite as clear and um, in hopes that like they, they create or stir an emotion in someone instead of just a like, this is what I experienced. Maybe you experienced it too, or this is what I went through. Maybe you're going to draw like um, very specific strength from it. Like absolutely heartbeat about our miscarriage is one where it's like, I'm just literally saying what happened mm -hmm. because it's difficult to find that language for a lot of people. Yeah. So it's how I processed pain. And then I found that like, you know, many others didn't know how to process the pain. And for whatever reason, listening to my three minute song has helped them process the pain. So that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But then I think, um, this is not really answering your question, but um, a lot of my lyrics, I'm not always trying to say something like hyper specific mm -hmm. even I'm mostly just trying to get an, an emotion across. Yeah. But um, when it comes to like parts of my story, I haven't mind. I mean, obviously um, there are things that have happened to me and others I know that I don't share. Mm -hmm. um, Cause it's not in many cases mine to share, Yeah. Um, but I'm still connected. It's still a part of my story. Uh, also a lot of my songs We'll have a chorus that were that was written ten years ago, and a verse that was written yesterday, mm. and I'll put them together, and then I'll realize the chorus I wrote ten years ago wasn't even about me. I was observing someone else, but I'm taking that chorus and then stitching it together with a verse that's about what I went through yesterday, mm. and it takes on this life of its own. I love doing that. So actually, a lot of my songs are semi-autobiographical. 
Mm. Because like, they're not always actually always about me. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, but those songs work. It's the weirdest thing. Mm-hmm. Like some of the songs I've had people write, write to me the, the most about are songs that are not completely autobiographical. Mm. Um, you know, I was witnessing one divorce and a second divorce and then experiencing my own like struggles as like trying to be a good husband. And I was like taking them all together and being like, let's write about this. Mm. Mm. And then of course people draw strength from that. Right. So I think that kind of answers your question, but I, I do try to protect myself a little bit mm-hmm. though. It's also a dirty question because I mean, I think one of the things that I've learned and learned to love about just the process of growth and maturation and aging is that there's, um, we might be aware that we have a blind spot, but um, usually by its definition, we're not. Uh, and so asking if there's any uncharted por- portions of your map, uh, I mean, I was kind of rolling the dice being like, well, maybe, maybe there is, um, maybe there's, uh, but at, at the same time, I, I trust that, well, you'll probably, if there are, it's maybe it's just because you haven't discovered them yet or the timing isn't right. You know, there's certain things like, you know, like I read brothers Karamazov in college and, um, because I knew that it was an important book. And I was sure. told. Yes, you know? exactly. And uh, I remember finishing it and closing it and being like, f- feeling a sense of accomplishment and awe. Um, and also just being like, I was not old enough for that book. Wasn't ready for that. I wasn't ready for that. Like, I'm looking forward to reading that in 20 more years because yeah. I, just so much of that went over my head. <laughs> it's all about timing. Yeah. Um, can I take this in another direction really quickly? Yes. No. No, no, no. I shouldn't. I saw that you're... Where are you going with this? No, no, no. I uh, feel free. Because I was, at, I was uh, asking myself the same question. There's a couple of different directions we could go. Well, I was... As I was driving here, I was thinking about what it means to make holistic art mm. and um, why or why not certain like faith-inspired art is really potent and others, other works of art, not as much so. Um, it's very charitable of you. Yeah. And one of my favorite works of art ever <laughs> is the Shawshank Redemption, mm. which I discovered in middle school and got the DVD and watched like over and over and over again. And there, are, I think there are probably video essays online of people saying like, this is one of the greatest works of Christian art. Mm. Now I wouldn't call it Christian art. Mm hmm. But what makes that movie so good is that yeah, the character of Andy Dufresne experiences all of this suffering and trauma and like little victories mm-hmm. and like relational victories and, and, and um, loss and injustice, wrongfully imprisoned. You know, his hopes and dreams have been crushed. Then he has to redefine what his hopes and dreams are within the context of a prison. It's just incredible, right? Like over and over and over again, it's very human. And then he escapes from prison by climbing through that like pipe of refuse. Mm -hmm. Literally like human waste. And then he spills out of this like tunnel, this pipe, and he, he like takes his shirt off, you know, mm-hmm. in the rain, in the rain. And he's just like washed. And that mountaintop experience means nothing if his character hadn't experienced everything else. Mm-hmm. It just, it just, it doesn't mean nothing. But to me as an artist, like the only reason that scene is so good mm-hmm. is because we've just observed him go through this like entire spectrum of human yeah. mm-hmm. uh, experience. And of course the scene that they added at the end, because originally the movie I think might've ended as he's on the bus going to find his friend who got out of prison. And I think somebody, maybe a producer or a writer was like, let's just add a little bit more. And so there's the famous scene of course, when he arrives in Mexico, spoiler alert. And um, they embrace. Mm -hmm. And it's like Mm -hmm. this beautiful 
almost like heavenly image. Mm-hmm. Anyways, my point is that's the type of art I like mm. because uh, as we all know, like just because you're, just because you, your relationship with your creator has been restored doesn't mean you're going to escape suffering. Mm-hmm. Like we all suffer. Even the most privileged, protected people experience suffering. Mm-hmm. And so to, in like defeat or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so to remove all of that out of an artistic equation and only make art about mountaintop experiences, it, it like, to me, it, it sucks the, um, it potency is the word I always come back to, but it, like the, it sucks the power out of it. Yeah. Now, when you're in a worship service and you're singing a mountaintop song, you yourself know the hell that you've been through to get to this moment. Mm-hmm. Like, unless you've just had this, maybe you're 20 years old and you just haven't experienced suffering on any like big level yet. But for most people, the reason the mountaintop experience, at least in the worship setting, the reason it makes sense is because you know all the things you've been through, right? That like God mm-hmm. has allowed to happen to you. Mm-hmm. And, but um, it's just a lot of, it seems to me, music made by people who share my Christian faith and maybe art in general. Um, maybe those artists just haven't been given permission to dig into that stuff quite as often. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why I thought of that film and I don't know why it felt like a really good template for like when mountaintop experiences work within art. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know when, the, when, have you ever seen the Shawshank Redemption? Not. So <gasps> I would love the next time you come and visit us, yeah. let's watch it together. Okay. For real. Yeah. It's a beautiful film. And I'm curious when the last time you got to see that film was, has it been a while? Yeah, it's probably been, I haven't seen it in the last five years. It is one of my all time favorite movies as well. And I mean, it's, it's a film where even, you know, you say that word and I can immediately vividly potently see like, a handful of different scenes there in stunning clarity. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right, which is, that's a quality that uh, beauty la- makes a lasting impression. Truth makes a lasting impression. Uh, and some of what I hear you talking about holistic art making um, is bearing faithful witness to um, kind of fearlessly or courageously, because it does take courage, bearing witness to uh, the fullness of the human experience that we see, the the beauty and the, to use that cliched term, brokenness. Uh, and it's something that I see in your art, something I'm, I'm grateful for. And it's, I think one of the things you're naming is that you appreciate stories that don't discount or um, belittle the pain that we, and the complexity of our own lived experience. Cause like you said, yeah, the, the, that sublime moment where Andy Dufresne is being baptized. I mean, it is one of the most like powerful baptismal scenes that I can think of. Um, yeah, it would mean nothing without just the, the years that he goes through of profound misunderstanding and abandonment and abuse and all these, these sorts of things. And that when we as storytellers and as artists give faithful witness to that aspect of our own journey and of the stories that we were privileged here at Nations to get to steward and to tell. Uh, I think it part of what is going on there that makes it have a lasting impact is that you're really you're not just honoring the subject of the story, um, you're honoring the audience's experience as well. And I know that when I'm in a when I'm in a explicitly Christian setting and I feel deeply uncomfortable, almost like if I start paying attention to that, almost always it's because that there's something that is not allowed to be there in the room. And it's almost always pain. So, I mean, I have, to be fair, I've been in settings where um, people want to disallow joy and want to disallow like mm-hmm. peace, like, hey, no, healing isn't possible. Life is only suffering. And... The, I mean, it can feel like that sometimes. I know I've been through seasons like that feels like the only truth that's there um, until I pay close attention to my life and realize that I have moments of profound transcendence like that are micro moments, 
but you know that happen every day that I'm I'm ca- capable of paying attention to and, and finding strength. You know, so it's we pendulum swing. Some people want to disallow that brokenness and only live on that mountaintop, and some people want to just wallow down there in the in the valley and be like, no, no, no. Yep, pain is truth. Mm. And film is truth. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Because part of what I, I'm hearing from you too, John, is I know that there's an aspect, as much as we, we've talked about you as kind of an artist and as a reformer, as somebody who's been on this this journey and has uh, invited us as listeners into it, because you just have kind of been relentless in pursuit of your craft as a songwriter and you've been prolific in your output. So you've put a lot of yourself out there over the last 20 years uh, for us to engage with that charts some of that spectrum and journey that you've been on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that, you know, yeah, it was, you've been the front man for a rock and roll band. You've been a solo artist. Um, you've been a worship director, you know, like you've been, you have, uh, you've put your shoulder to the complex task of trying to lead communities in worship. And I know that's some of what you do now. So I kind of one of the closing uh, parts of this conversation I'd like to have is I know you've thought a fair amount about, um, Hey, like what is, uh, what makes for worship music or healthy worship as you know, um, as a creator of it and as a leader of it. And I know that if there's a place that I've heard you articulate um, a desire to reform, it's around uh, around how the church thinks about and uses music and art. Um, and there's a great little anecdote that I think shines a light on this, is that you put out an EP last, I think it was last year, I think it's called Content. Or Content. Oh, Content emphasis on the syllable, syllable matters, mm-hmm. but there's a song called God Outside of Time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I was really, there's a lot of great songs on that record, but that was one that I was particularly drawn to for a couple of different reasons. One, because the, um, the lyrics that you're actually writing are just, they're pretty provocative and it's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. So great job titling that song. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, but the thing that cap- captivated me more was, uh, yeah, some of it's like the production and arrangement of it. And uh, it's this kind of, it's, you know, it's got beauty and nuance and it's restrained. And then it's got this, it's this kind of uh, unruly crescendo. And I, for whatever reason, it I just really was enjoying that element of it. And I wanted deeply to share it with my wife. And I'm sorry, Kelly, if you're listening to this, I didn't ask permission to share this part of the story. Mm-hmm. But I was like, hey, babe, I think we're driving into church probably or something. I was like, listen to this, this song that John just put out. And uh, I, I was like, I really, I really lo- like, I really love it. And I want to share it with you. And she's like, okay, yeah. And so we're listening to it. And uh, I think she started getting blown up by somebody from work via text. And so she shifted focus for a second and it was right as the song kind of starts to take off. And she, she like kind of subconsciously reaches over and turns down the volume. And then she goes, ah, kind of aggressive. And I was like, I know. Um, I'm like, that's so great. She's like, yeah, I don't, I don't get it. Uh, and it led to this wonderful, like, I think I, sh- I shared that moment with you mm-hmm. and you laughed and the, there's a story that I, I, could you please share the story that you shared with me? It's a long way of asking. Can you share the story that you shared with me about what was going on behind like the scenes of that song and why it ended up in that kind of unvarnished yeah. perspective? I think, I think I know, I mean, I, I'll do my best to tell it now. I can't exactly remember what yeah. I told you then. Um, so when you add the content DP to marathon days, mm-hmm. um, that's actually supposed to be the whole version of the record. And so when it, if it ever comes out on vinyl, the content or content EP is actually side D. Gotcha. So in my mind, uh, God outside of time. And if I get to heaven, which are the two last songs on the EP, mm-hmm. they are actually the last two songs on marathon days. Mm. And marathon days starts with Oh, sweetest name, which is a song in which I, use a very abstract language to get across a sense of uh, frustration, doubt, serious lack of faith, like almost divorcing myself from Christian culture. Like I don't like this. Mm. I don't want, oops, 
forgive me. I don't want this. I don't like this. I don't belong here, but I still love God. Kind of like God. <laughs> and it, it's supposed to kind of climax in God outside of time and if I get to heaven, where, you know, with God outside of time, it's kind of like scattershot thoughts of like, this is who God is and this is what makes me feel safe within my unknowing. Like, I just trusting to kind of fall back into this reality of like God being other mm-hmm. and beyond. And most of my peers who make Christian music, would it would be a very clean offering. Mm. High fidelity, the drums would sound good. It wouldn't be aggressive. Um, it would make sense and it would be nice to listen to. And very specifically, when I start singing the pre-chorus in that song, there's two arpeggiating synths that are panned, like one here, one here, and they're both not in time. That's very purposeful. And if you, as a listener, notice them, it's super uncomfortable because mm-hmm. the, the arpeggiating, arpeggiating synths are not landing where they're supposed to. And I love it so much. It's just like, yes, because it makes sense, totally makes like, logical sense for the arpeggiating sense to be on time. And then getting to a place where I can sing my God outside of time, like over and over and over again. And I'm using like some of the worst sounding distortion you've ever heard. It's bad. It's like purposely bad. Uh, the drums are like me banging on stuff. Um, it's just bad. And like, yet it's so what I like about music. I was raised in a world where, imperfection is cool Mm. and things are not supposed to always sound good. And actually it's way more punk rock to just like give her hell, you know? And so um, to me, that's an artistic statement. That's me being like, I'm singing about my Mm. creator. I'm singing about Yahweh Mm. and I'm finding like a safety and a comfort in my God being like infinitely beyond me. Mm. And I'm not, and it's going to sound bad. And it's going to be loud. And because cause noisy DIY lo-fi music is what I love. Mm. And I knew when I did that, that it would instantly disqualify like 90% of my listeners from enjoying it. Mm. And that is true. And so that's, that was a purposeful thing. We tried to re-record it, make it sound better. And I was like, nope, mm. doesn't work. It's not working. It's too, it's too clean. Mm. So that's my, that's how that was what I was going through when I did it. If I had my way, the uh, ambient part of the song, which happens after the noise, um, would have gone on for, for like fifteen minutes. And the only other thing I'd say is that when, because the drums are kind of doing this thing that makes somewhat sense, and they're kind of like falling in and out of time, mm. but then it just becomes this like wave of noise that's supposed to be like waves crashing. Yeah, and I that's like my favorite part of the record. It just makes me so happy. So the fact that Kelly, like, <laughs> bless her heart, you know, ew, this is, I don't like this. Mm-hmm. You know, that's okay. Because there's got to be space for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did that version, you didn't tell me that full version when we uh, we spoke about this song. Uh, I mean, I think in part because it was over text. Um, I really like that full version of the, st- of the story. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> Drop back in. <laughs> that was a long answer. I'm really sorry. Dude, why would you apologize? I just thanked you for a great answer. Oh, mm. you're very welcome. <laughs> Much better. Mm. We'll, we'll edit out your unnecessary apology. We won't do that. <laughs> Is there anything else we need to talk about? I don't you know, I feel like we've run the gamut. We have. One thing I will say is that the, the next solo record I'm releasing is called Anthem Sprinter, and the songs are very, very, very old. Ooh. Uh, one I wrote when I was in high, like a freshman in high school. And every song is so hard to sing. And they're not all autobiographical, but like it's basically like a prequel. Mm. And um, I love it, but I also hate it at the same time. Mm. Hard to sing in what way? Because almost every song came from a place of like deep distress where I felt like I was the antagonist in every situation. And they're painful. 
there's like painful memories all over it. Dude. And yet that's the record that tooth and nail will be releasing this year. And that's good mm. because it, it's like, and I can preface it by saying, this is kind of a prequel. Mm -hmm. This is like, if you want to put it in a chronological order, this goes at the beginning, mm -hmm. but it's, um, it definitely has like, it's uncomfortable for me. Wait a second. How old are you when you're a freshman in high school? Are we back to 16 year old John? 15 or 15 year old John. Yeah. Well, that means we came a little bit more than full circle. We started with 16 year old John and we end with 15 year old John. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, John, thanks for, uh, thanks for being willing to come by the nation's international headquarters and have yeah. the, uh, this conversation. Thanks for writing for us. Uh, thanks in advance for the different ways that, um, you and your art and your voice are going to continue to inspire us here at the nation's office and, um, and some of the different work that we're going to do here. I'm excited about some of the things that we've chatted about and dreamed up and I hope that they come to fruition because I think it's going to be a lot of fun to continue to get to just follow along with you Thank as you. you make stuff. Um, so if people are interested in listening to things that you have made or just finding uh, more about John Van Dusen and what he's up to in the world, what are good ways that we can do that? Uh, you can search my name. It's pretty easy. Uh, you know, on streaming platforms. Bandcamp is my favorite uh, platform to share my music. Um, I usually write like a an essay of sorts before I release certain records, and I like prefacing my works of art with that essay. Yeah. Um, and you can really only find those on Bandcamp. But that's really it. I'm in a new band called Telephone Friends, which is fun. And, um, just started writing the f like companion piece to every power wide awake, which is, is a worship record. Mm -hmm. So for this time, instead of it being a devotional work of art, it's supposed to be a corporate work of art. Oh, cool. So that's a new challenge. It is a new challenge and it's hard. So anyways, you could, if you're listening and you're curious, you know, you can be expecting those, those things to happen and then just search my name. Okay. And you've got that record coming out tooth and nail later this year. I think so. Yeah. And the Telephone's Friend record is f currently unfolding. And out in June. Out in June. And it's not anything like my solo music, really. And that's good. Thank you, you guys, so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you, John. Mm -hmm. See you next time. Okay. Will there be a next time? Please. Let's pray about it. Okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> that was, uh, that was great. Long was Definitely that? a little bit.